You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Okay. Okay. Very good. Uh, well, first of all, thank you everybody for coming. Uh, we'll start with uh, acknowledging that we're here on the uh, unceded lands of the uh, custodians of this part of Melbourne, uh, the Wurundjeri of the uh, uh, Kulam Nation. And we want to pay our respects to their elders, uh, past, present, and those emerging. And also to acknowledge that as design professionals, we acknowledge and understand the um, traditional uh, caring that has taken place of the environment as part of the tradition of our indigenous peoples and to welcome all indigenous peoples and Torres Strait Islanders who might be uh, witnessing this event today. Thank you all for coming. This is gonna be a fairly informal talk. It's an opportunity. Um, at the Melbourne School of Design and the Faculty of Architecture and Building and Planning at uh, University of Melbourne. We've invited Matthias Saarbrook from the practice of Saarbrook Hutton in Berlin to come as part of the Dean's Lecture Series. But the opportunity is also to work closely with one of our dear partners, which is Impavilion. Sam Redston, who's the CEO, is here, who we thank very much for helping to facilitate this engagement. But you know, having the in pavilion uh, here in Melbourne, and particularly this version, number nine of the in pavilions, is a great opportunity to be able to just have a public uh, conversation. Matthias will be speaking on Tuesday night at the University of Melbourne um, about projects from uh, Sarbrook Hutton, particularly around some of the issues around climate change and climate adaptability in architecture and responses in architecture. But I really wanted uh, to have the opportunity to talk to him about the projects that his practice has done around color, because I can't think of a, another architect and architectural practice that has been so um, both exploratory, but considerate of how architecture and color work together. Not color as an applique, but color as a fundamental design uh, constituent of how designs are developed and processed. And so really, it's very informal, as I said. We've got some images that Matthias has put together. Uh, he'll sort of flick through some of them. We'll have some comments. We'll ask if anybody in the audience wants to uh, ask or raise any questions with Matthias or make any comments about that. But it's, I think really from my point of view, I'm just here, I love the work, but I probably don't understand it uh, fully. And so I'm here to learn from Matthias in terms of how they make certain decisions, what the, what the relationships are, how those uh, choices within color uh, emerge, but also what kind of effects spatially, programmatically, environmentally, and so forth are there as well. Matthias Saarbrook is, as I said, a founder and director of Saarbrook Hutton Architects from Berlin. Uh, 
Matthias and I first met uh, probably about 1983-84 when Matthias was still a student at the Architectural Association. I had just begun to teach there. Uh, and within, I think within the year, Matthias and his partner, Louisa Hutton, both graduated from the AA, from the AA Diploma School. And they also began to teach at the AA in the first year section. And uh, believe it or not, I was actually the technical advisor for all the first year studios. Um, I know, I know he's laughing, but anyway, I was. I knew a little bit about construction and, and such. I know nobody knows that, but I did. Um, and so Matthias and Louisa and, and their students uh, and I got to spend a lot of time together talking about student projects and giving a bit of advice on that. More importantly, out of that, uh, we became good friends, did some exhibitions and, and other projects together. In 1995 or 93, uh, I mean, Matthias had worked for OMA and was the lead project architect for the OMA project for Checkpoint Charlie in Berlin, the first building that was being built there. Uh, and then they set up their office. They had the office in London and office in Berlin. Uh, and then they won this incredible project for the GSV, which was an existing 1960s tower in Berlin, in West Berlin. This is before the wall came down, uh, or just after the wall had come down. Uh, and they made an addition to this, which created this incredible environmental skin, but was also accommodation, office accommodation and uh, along the podium, some really amazing interventions as part of that. Uh, incredible project uh, for sort of the office, and that established Saarbrook Hutton, really eventually just in Berlin, because that's where all the work came from. And there's a whole range of projects which you'll see in some of this. But just to get back to the point to a certain degree of, of this conversation, it partly begins because of of this. So this is, there, I think this is the first project that uh, Matthias and Louisa did, which is actually their house in North London, uh, Ladbroke Grove, if, if that right? Notting Hill, Ladbroke Grove. Uh, and I remember this because I was fortunate enough to stay there for a few weeks uh, when I was in between residences. Uh, and I had never been spent time in a, in a house, in an apartment, in a residence that was so colorful. But it was color that was more than just flash or wouldn't this be interesting or the, the, the color wall, the feature wall. This was a really intelligent use of color throughout the whole project. And uh, I just remember how profound that was. And then in the work that's emerged from Sauerbrook Hutton, that, that sensitivity to color has emerged in their commercial, their cultural buildings, their institutional buildings, and so forth. But I want to begin there, Matthias. Can you just give us a little bit of a background about both how you, you and Louisa work together? Because we're showing a lot of images of projects, but there's an, also an incredible array of drawings, which I think are some of the most beautiful drawings of architectural spaces and architectural propositions where color also features 
very uh, prominently, but importantly in terms of how you understand the, the, the sort of speculation of the project. But maybe you could give us a little bit of a background on how you and Louisa began working together, and then particularly with this project in London. Thank you for your nice introduction, Don. Um, <clears throat> and yes, I, I mean, Don asked me to put together a few slides to talk about color. And I have to admit, I, we don't normally like to talk about color and architecture without the architecture, um, because I mean, normally it's an integrated um, affair, also an integrated design and so on and so forth. But as there will be this lecture on Tuesday, where I'm going to go on at length about climate change and urbanism and all of these kind of issues. Um, here you get a sort of preview, if you like, with this um, seen through, the, through this kind of focus of, of color in, in space. Um, well, Louisa Hutton and myself, we met at the AA, as uh, Donald already um, mentioned. Um, and uh, we lived in a, in a house in Notting Hill, which uh, was one of the typical Victorian um, London terrace houses, um, which are under conservation order um, as a whole. And you cannot really uh, change anything to ex in its exterior. You can only um, upkeep it, um, but you can't uh, do any interventions. And of course, we've been studying I don't know for how many years have we been studying, seven or eight years or something like that, and we were burning to, to do something, to build something, to kind of design something and so on and so forth. And uh, as we were in this kind of apartment, um, we were thinking of, you know, what can we do? And, and the obvious thing is that you can make interior interventions um, and you can, you, you're fairly uh, free to, to intervene with whatever you feel um, is appropriate. But of course, <laughs> there were also budgetary limitations and uh, we didn't have that much money to spend. And so it was in the end, it was the furniture and the kind of few kind of uh, little interventions like the staircase and so on and so forth, which, um, which we ventured to do. Uh, the major the major piece was maybe the roof, um, which I'll come back to. But I mean, this drawing, I mean, that's the other thing, uh, Don mentioned this already. Um, we had been uh, practicing architecture in inverted commas um, through drawing. In other words, the, um, both the AA and also the, the school where I had been studying before in Berlin had a kind of great tradition of drawing. And we, at the time, there were no computers yet. We were doing everything by hand and also by with the brush and we were sort of making these these uh, let's say explanatory drawings or maybe also research type drawings searching drawings which are trying to um, tell ourselves and obviously whoever uh, was interested in it um, what we were looking after and <coughs> this is a drawing which basically shows all the, i mean it's a bit difficult to understand if you don't know um, if you don't know the building but it shows all the plans <laughs> and all the interventions and it's hopefully kind of catching the spirit of trying to um, refresh this kind of relatively stuffy architecture that uh, we found and this these are some of the images of the time I mean as you can see it's all minor minor interventions including some big kind of uh, piece of furniture which I think Louisa had inherited from her grandmother which was too large to move so we built around it 
And and I guess the pièce de résistance, in a way, was the the top floor, where, um, as I mentioned, we somehow um, semi-legally, I guess, kind of uh, uh, installed a glass roof. In other words, we took the roof off and we replaced it with uh, glazing um, so that we had the open sky above this relatively small space. It's about maybe 45 or so square meters, the whole floor. And for us, that was not just a, a way of making a kind of interesting living room for ourselves or kind of we were living and working in there as well. But it was also an experiment, obviously, in um, the relationship of color and space. We were, in principle, kind of trying to um, expand, if you like, um, the, the, the visual impact, expand the kind of um, perception of uh, the, the spaces that were obviously physically totally limited. I mean, there's a four meter fifty wide gap between two party walls. There's not much going on in between that, and it's maybe nine meters in 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 the other direction. So we were sort of through uh, precise uh, color contrast. Uh, we were trying to give the impression of a larger expanse of space, kind of a certain. Uh, um, that's the ambiguity um, of its limits. And this is, again, uh, um, an effect that we were trying to reflect in drawing. Um, here, uh, obviously, with the orientation to the sky, this, this room is, I mean, there are small windows with views, but the views are not particularly significant. The, the big impact is the sky, which, of course, as you, you can imagine, at night and a certain sort of sunset and summer and so on and so forth. It's a very dramatic screen that is somehow dominating the space and everything somehow circles around it. But we were trying with these kind of color fields, trying to dissolve, if you like, the, the physical, rather banal envelope um, of this space. And to some degree, that was very successful and for us it was a good testing field. And <coughs> just for those who... Um, are not so familiar maybe with color in, in architecture. I mean, I just mentioned a few references. I mean, these are literally about a hundred years ago, the drawings by Theo van Dersburg and Cornelius Esteren. Van Esteren is the, the style group, which were uh, experimenting with the, what later on was kind of labeled to be a neoplasticism. They were kind of uh, experimenting with the effect of darkness, lightness, color, hue, and so on, on the visual, on the, the, the perception of three-dimensional objects, first of all in drawings, but then also in, in actual uh, buildings. But this is another, another artist, Elisitsky, uh, and one of his so-called prune, prune, or prown, whatever you want to pronounce it, spaces where he was, again, trying to do um, a sculptural intervention which would somehow dissolve the limitations of a very a kind of modest gallery space. Um, another, I mean, so Ledbury Road in a way was a kind of very practical application. We also had to accommodate our socks and our shoes and, and you know, a kitchen and, and all those things. Um, this is a more of a kind of art project which is free of uh, functional uh, a requirement and the the thing that was maybe is closest to this to this type of exercise is a, an intervention which we made much later um, in a gallery in Berlin where we uh, 
change an existing space through um, the intervention of uh, colored fields that are painted directly onto the wall. And as you can see, uh, through the kind of uh, uh, composition of darker and lighter, of uh, different colors, cooler and warmer colors, we managed to dissolve the perception of, uh, again, a relatively limited environment. Um, literally kind of making you feel a little bit seasick, if you like, a little bit uncertain about the limitations uh, of that particular space. The idea was, in a way, to make you aware of your own perception, if you like. I mean, as you were um, maneuvering up and down this staircase here, um, you were mm, a little bit uncertain about yourself, and you kind of, and it, it somehow threw you back onto your, onto your, um, the the register of your own of your own senses, if you like, what you're seeing and and your kind of balancing and your your body, your bodily senses. Um, it was a de deliberate attempt to undermine space, if you like, through color. Yeah, look, I, I want to intervene there for just a sec because I just want to go a little bit back to Ludbury Road uh, because I I completely understand and 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 accept the the premise like with the drawings about you know it is a very narrow space you know i mean it's not that different to a lot of uh uh row house buildings here in melbourne which are actually very narrow very long and there's you know then you have the corridor and then you have kind of the rooms off the corridor which leaves very little kind of living space and such but and so i think I mean, it, it makes complete sense to me in terms of your, your use of color to try to give a sense of expansion of space, which I think it does. But I would also say that, that uh, the colors that you have used, like in this image here, are incredibly evocative of something other than just expansion of space. You know, they, I mean, I, th I think, you know, historically, at least in my architectural education, the the one architect that does seem to come up in terms of this kind of quality of use of colors is someone like Barragon, Luis Barragon. And, you know, when I saw the first images, the first photographs, the book that came out on Luis Barragon, it was like a kind of revelation that you could use colors in such a way that, that uh, you know, the architecture or the spatial quality changed because of colors. Colors were not there just to make accent colors or background colors or framing colors or something. They were actually doing something else. And when I look at the colors that, the, the palette that you developed for Ledbury, it, it, it's doing all those things you say about spatial expansions, but it seems to be doing something more. And so when you then show the, the next project, which is really much more kind of uh, uh, articulation of how color changes, how you understand surfaces and edges and uh, uh, different relationships. I'm just interested a little bit on, on how those colors at Ledbury emerged because it, it's quite a luscious palette, you might say. I mean, at least for me it is. Yes, I mean, that's, um, it's correct that, I mean, even if you, you might be applying color with the intent of, say, a spatial effect, um, but you also... Inter you're, you're introducing um, a certain atmosphere, a certain somehow um, color palette, 
which uh, which affects the space um, not just in terms of its limitations, but obviously in terms of its presence, in terms of its say general feeling. Um, and uh, <laughs> when we when we chose those colors, I mean we were literally experimenting. I mean first on first on drawing, but then also on site. I mean like the pink wall was blue, <laughs> and so we we had the the whole thing repainted because we realized it doesn't really work. It doesn't you know the, uh, the atmosphere is not correct and so on and we also the colors where we were also the, the actual substance of color is is also an important aspect so here we were uh, working with layers so we had an uh, always a, a kind of bottom tone which we then kind of covered by hand with kind of uh, uh, little sponges and kind of made a sort of um, if you like a sort of uh, a glaze or something whatever you call it a sort of transparent layer on top so you wouldn't have a kind of like a, a surface like this one which is totally flat but it's a surface which is somewhat alive and somewhat um, kind of to a degree, a little bit ambiguous. So yeah, I mean, we were using this as a one-to-one -one model, if you like, and we were sort of literally um, experimenting also with the color range that later on would be um, uh, be used on a on an urban scale. And I guess we made the sort of first steps in in kind of trying to establish uh, or trying to understand what effect which color and what the relationship of color, the interaction of color, as Albus uh, called it, um, it, could be like. And i I just like to show you another, oh, I see, sorry, uh, another example. The actual, the first major building that we got to finish, I mean, it's a, it's a project that we won while we were working on GSW, and it was, it was finished much quicker. It was a laboratory building, also in Berlin, on the outskirts, in a sort of science park. This uh, is the photonics The photonics center, yeah. 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 And here we, we were heavily into um, uh, active skins. Um, this is a uh, double layer skin which uh, has its is compartment compartmentalized into window uh, uh, bays and uh, sort of like chimneys if you like uh, solar chimneys which are creating a sort of negative pressure which helps to ventilate the interior and because it's about photonics we and, and photonics being about light uh, we are kind of obviously uh, tempted to uh, it's this sort of amoebic form and to make a facade which would basically reflect the the colors of the rainbow which is basically the the, the light the spectrum of the color spectrum of light uh, and so around the building uh, we we uh, designed these um, color fields which were making up a facade parts of them being mobile kind of like being sort of uh, louvers which are go going up and down and parts of them were the actual structure and I mean here you can see um, the effect of color on space uh, again I mean this is really starting to dissolve the the, the tectonics of this uh, of this space the columns were difficult to identify what, what's carrying what and and uh, it all became one kind of impression, if you like. Um, and of course, this is now the, the the warm end of the building. There's a there was a cool end on the other side. Um, and again, it's a sort of um, uh, opportunity to experiment with with different color combinations. And there's a just in the same building. There's an interior, 
uh, which uh, you can see we were not just in the red spectrum. No, no, <laughs> no. But I wonder if you could go back to the the image before, because one of the things I'm interested. So, in the Ledbury apartment, which right. I was lucky enough to live in for a few nights and stuff like that. I mean, you really you feel that that kind of quality of the choices of color and how they uh, work off of each other. Because I mean, at the end of the day, it's not just well, there's a this is a white wall, and then there's a color here, and there's, I mean, there there are colors against colors and stuff. For between one level and another level, there are changes and stuff. Here in the photonics building, uh, you know, both as a laboratory, but also there are lots of different people using it, and you know, there is a, I would say, there's a fairly banal discourse about color in architecture, which often relates to warm colors versus cool colors colors that are calming colors, so you use color because it's going to calm people down in a hospital or something, or you use other colors to, to make it a bit more vibrant. And so, I'm interested in the conversations that might have emerged when you were designing this institutional scientific-based building and the people who used it, or the conversations that emerged after it was finished and what came out of that. Well, um, the thing about color in general is that it 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 uh, provokes emotion somehow. I mean, people uh, people are not ignore a, a colored building is is barely ignored. People will recognize, they will remember it, they will react to it. I mean, positively or negatively, which is one of the assets, but also one of the problems. One has to say of uh, of color in architecture. Um, and in this particular instance, we were ready to uh, be abused for <laughs> what, we were, what we were proposing and what we were executing. I mean, this basically the, the tenants, it was built by a kind of, uh, if you like, a management company and the tenants uh, were only getting involved once everything was more or less finished. Uh, but we didn't have any negative comments from the mostly scientists or te technicians into kind of physics and so on, so optics and so on and so forth. But the color was not a problem. I mean, everybody loved it. Everybody reacted to it somehow. It, it, the one thing that was uh, quite funny, we had a, um, uh, a project with a filmmaker and um, she had thought out this scheme where she would be interviewing us, the architects, um, and uh, let us describe what, we, what our intent was. And then she would be going to one of the occupants and interview her or him uh, and ask what, you know, how they saw this. And, and of course, the, the intended effect of great discrepancy of intent and effect uh, was kind of quickly illustrated. But there was a very funny moment when a woman was uh, being interviewed and she said, yeah, if she really liked it and the colors and everything was great and so on and so forth. But I was one, and she said, I'm wondering when they're going to finish the walls. <laughs> so, so yeah, we had exposed concrete walls and we were very proud of it. <laughs> but they, they didn't recognize it as being finished. So I mean, okay. <laughs> Do you get that? Um, but I mean, the, the thing about color is, um, as you all know, I mean, if you go through the industrial landscapes, the suburbs, the kind of surroundings of airports and so on and so forth, it can be really, um, it can be really jarring. It can be really kind of difficult to take. I mean, if the if color work is sensitive, is sensitive, sensitive, and you can somehow 
if you're not willing doing it very deliberately, I think it can be uh, negative. But it can also have, a, with very simple means, very little uh, investment, you can get an incredible emotional effect. I mean, uh, the people will always recognize what you do. I mean, I've got another example here. When we were working on this um, project, um, we, we had an, an intern called Camilla Wilkinson. Uh, I remember her name very well because she's the granddaughter of Sir Norman Wilkinson, uh, who is a painter who in the First World War, um, he was he's a, a particularly a painter of, uh, of Navy uh, themes like the sea and ships and everything else. He came up with this idea of dazzle painting. You may have heard of it. Um, it's, a, it's a way of um, painting the battleships that would irritate the, um, the kind of German um, periscopes that came from the U-boat, the submarines. Um, and you can see, as in this illustration, we're kind of confusing the German soldiers uh, in, in the direction that the ships were taken. And this is a painting of the said uh, Norman Wilkinson of his own idea of the, um, of the what he called dazzle painting. And uh, indeed, I mean, there are certain, I mean, not just that there are certain similarities in the stripes and so on, but I mean, there, there were, it's certainly in this image quite evident, there's a similar intent of disorientation, if you like, um, uh, physical uh, uncertainty or ambiguity um, within the interiors of this um, building. Um, and of course, that's in art history, you're all aware of that. I mean, there, there are these trompe l'oeil um, paintings, which are like in this Baroque church in Rome, um, are suggesting an, an endless space kind of going into, into the sky that if you're standing in the right position is quite convincing as an illusion. But I mean, of course, if you're changing position, you're very quickly aware of the fact that this is just a two-dimensional surface that's been painted in a kind of perspectival way which works from one point in the space but not from others. And on that, um, on that kind of dialogue of uh, you know, being in the right position or being in the wrong position and like reading something as a 3D uh, object or something as a 2D painting, um, we did an interior for the British Council in Berlin and um, worked together with Michael Craig Martin, the artist who uh, suggested these books, these, the ceiling painting where he painted these big books which are sort of trying to help us to expand again a kind of very banal office space that was just a, a floor in a kind of commercial office building and turn it into something that is spatially more ambiguous while obviously telling a story of a library this was a library so kind of you know picking up on the on the idea of books and uh, and reading and so on sorry just go back just one more go back so mm -hmm. in in a situation like this you worked with an artist a yes. visual artist where 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 do the decisions lie where do the decisions <clears throat> not not the conceptual decisions about these sort of images of books per se, but the decisions about a particular color, uh, the background color versus the the object color versus the outline around an object, and so on. Where, how did how did that process work? Well, I mean, this this one is an exception <coughs> because we did work with an with an artist, which is not uh, that often the case. Uh, normally, we we would make the choices ourselves. 
And as a matter of fact, Michael Craig Martin uh, used a palette which we wouldn't uh, uh, normally use. I mean, it's very poster in a way, very extreme color contrasts, uh, very sort of, um, let's say, uh, straight, uh, unmixed colors, which are com coming straight, more or less straight from a, from a paint pot, if you like, from a, you know, commer almost commercial um, color. And uh, and as you I mean as you can see I mean the the the, the contrast I mean this is a, obviously it's not quite as intense as this drawing, but the the contrasts are very very strong kind of um, obviously helping this effect I mean the because you because it's not a space is not very tall it's about maybe three meters and something um, you need to have a certain distance and the, and the extreme contrast helps a lot but as far as we are concerned. Um, our kind of color, say, finding process is normally a laborious kind of uh, quite lengthy uh, process which lasts a certain period. We, we kind of start off with first ideas and sketches and drawings and then uh, maybe make models, paper models and so on and so forth. And then eventually when it really comes to defining the precise color, it, we have to make one-to-one -one models. I mean, there are... Uh, quite often, the, the 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 actual colors are mixtures of different. Um, like we use the NCS color system, and so sometimes they're mixtures of certain uh, hues. Uh, and um, when we work with other materials like glass or ceramics or something like that, it's also the production process becomes part of it. You have to make tests and uh, particularly with ceramics, the outcome is unpredictable. It slightly depends on the, the firing process and so on and so forth. And sometimes we find our results in the actual, uh, actual uh, mock-up or the kind of test uh, pieces that, um, that, we, that we get back from the manufacturers. So it's normally iterative and it's very difficult to pinpoint a certain principle. We don't have a palette, color palette like Le Corbusier, for example, claimed to have had for himself. I think it's, I mean, he made it for a wallpaper company, this, uh, this uh, range, and I'm, I'm not sure how truthful it is in terms of his own work, but it doesn't really matter. He kind of suggested a certain range. We don't really repeat ourselves in that way. It's always somehow new, and it's sometimes a reaction to program, like in the case of this uh, photonic center. We have one or two uh, cases where we reacted to um, a, a corporate image, like for example, we did a headquarters tower for the German Automobile Club, which is um, their CI is is red and uh, sorry yellow and black, and so we were trying to do something with yellow. Um, or it's quite often it's also to do with the context. Like uh, if you have if you you're facing a park, you maybe don't want to necessarily highlight the contrast between park and building, but you kind of try and make it blend in, so it's a green range. And then in other cases, it's uh, you know facing brick buildings or whatever, so you kind of pick up that uh, red range in, in a certain, in a certain. And in principle, one can say, I mean, you could, there's no such thing as a bad color. I mean, there's no, you, you may have your favorite colors. You may say, I don't know, I like blue or I like pink or whatever. 
um, and and so therefore I don't like green. Uh, but it's you can't really you can't really say it's it's really depending on the relationship between colors, and that's. And is that is that because I mean that, I was trying to allude to that a little bit earlier, where we're often told you know that certain colors evoke certain emotions, and therefore you wouldn't paint this room yellow because that's too exciting. You need to paint it green because that calms people down. I mean, this sort of psycho-emotional relationship, do you pay any attention to any of that? Or it's really coming from the experience of how you've employed certain colors and, and the consequence or the effects of some of those? Um, I mean, the simple answer is um, not really, not consciously. I mean, we, we never would never argue you have to make this room yellow because that's going to make you happy or something like that. Um, but in a complicated way, um, we are <laughs> because it's going through our intuition in a way. It's a we're trying to simulate the situation as much as we can in terms of drawings, in terms of mock-ups, in terms of models, and but then also one-to-one -one, uh, samples in the space. And we, in the end, making our um, decisions intuitively, even though we're discussing it and we're kind of debating it, making variations and so on and so forth. In the end, it's an intuitive, like an artist in front of a canvas or so. We're, we're deciding um, what we think is the best solution. We're also not following any particular color theory as, as you like, because you, you must be aware that there are plenty of color theories. We, we are also aware of them, we're studying them, but we're not following it like a sort of recipe, um, but it's, it's really a reaction to sight and, and program. And uh, let me just see. I mean, these are um, Joseph Albers paintings, and I've got them here because um, his book Interaction of Color is basically um, specifying what exa exactly what I was trying to say with in my words and simple words, um, which is that it's about the relationship of colors amongst each other. So you can see very well if you kind of compare these three paintings, which are essentially the same. Um, just because of the choice of color, you get a totally different spatial effect and also a totally different kind of atmospheric situation. I mean, it's quite astounding. Um, he, he speaks about actual fact and factual fact. Um, uh, what he means is um, actual fact is, is what you see and what you imagine to be seeing. I mean, you're looking maybe into a kind of what looks like a corridor or you're looking into a space that you know, is layered in three layers maybe. And factual space is, is the two-dimensional canvas with a two millimeters of paint on top of it, um, which has got nothing to do with um, the actual impression. I mean, the, the traditional paintings are also is very similar. I mean, you're, you're basically looking at a landscape or you're looking at an interior or whatever, and you're imagining this kind of space in three-dimensional. In three-dimensional, in reality, it's a, it's a two-dimensional surface. And his um, theory reduces this onto the mere color, onto the kind of the, the value and the kind of lightness uh, of, um, of color effect. And he's, ex he's been exercising this in his own kind of relatively endless um, sequence of what's called homage to the square, and of which I have three examples here. So 
<coughs> no, this is the said GSW building, <laughs> and uh, and all of the uh, above above somehow applies to this. It's except except it's on an urban scale. It's kind of a meet, uh, 80 meter tall facade, which um, is operating like a, a convection facade. It's also a double skin. It's uh, allowing for natural ventilation of a, uh, a high-rise building, which is um, not a not very normal. It's a controlled natural ventilation. Normally, if you open the window, all your papers are flying around. If you open the door, the window uh, shuts very abruptly, and um, you could uh, kind of hurt somebody. So, I mean, this is very controlled because of this um, double space, and it's that in itself again has flaps at top and bottom, so that the airflow is very um, slow. But what we were trying to do here is. Uh, two things really. One is what you were talking about, it's a, about atmosphere. I mean, those of you who've been to Berlin, this is this was very um, close to the wall, very close to Checkpoint Charlie, in an area of town which at the time, this is like uh, 1990 really, uh, the conception and it was built, finished in 1999. It took a long time to be realized. But I mean, it, it was in an area which was totally depressed. It was really neglected and uh, 89, the, um, the reunification, uh, the kind of fall of the wall changed everything for this area as well. But it, uh, at the time when it was conceived, it was still um, very yeah, depressed and this introduced a totally different kind of tone and a note to, to an urban site. It into really turned it into a um, somehow optimistic sign and a kind of symbol of, of the renewal that came along with the reunification. But in terms of the actual surface, what we were trying to get at is to create a certain um, plasticity, a kind of relief, if you like, uh, uh, to suggest a facade which has a certain depth, which it in actual fact it had, but I mean it was only a meter depth, which on the scale of a building of this kind of size is not very much. Um, and so making the colors darker and lighter and introducing a certain degree of differentiation of between cooler and warmer colors helped to create this sort of fur, if you like, this sort of you know um, facade that had suggested plasticity, um, almost like maybe traditional facades, but obviously on a slightly more abstract level. Here you can see what how it actually works. It has uh, shutters as sort of solar protection within a, a one meter deep layer, which is um, operative. Uh, so every person, every desk, you can open and close, so the building constantly changes. Sometimes it's totally um, open, you don't see many of the color charters, and sometimes like that, when the sun is the west side, and the sun hits in the afternoon, then it kind of, if you like, blooms, the building kind of changes entirely. But this just, just <coughs> before you go too far, if you go back just a couple of images, um, yeah, like there, <coughs> I have two comments or questions. Right. I mean, one is, you know, you're not seeing it, but everybody else is looking behind you, not just at the screen, but at the downtown of Melbourne. And right. It's fairly monochromatic. Yes. <laughs> if not exclusively monochromatic, primarily gray and such. So one question relates to the, the kind of polychromic quality that you brought and, and the degree to which not only was this addition to an existing 60s tower 
but also bringing color into the city, which, you know, certainly if you looked at Melbourne, you would think nobody would imagine having color in a high-rise building. But the other is the, the variegation. I mean, because, you know, you know, we know from the history of modern architecture, which the background behind us is a part, part of, it's about consistency that the top looks the same as the bottom, that the left looks the same as the right. You know, if you have blinds, everybody should open their blinds at the same time and close them at the same time. And yet here you have a quite purposeful variegation of, of differences, which creates an overall image. But if you look, you know, I mean, the, the, the next image along, you know, where there's a quite a strong, you know, between quite strong reds to very light, and so on and so forth. So my, I guess my two questions are, what, what was the reception of the project once it was completed as a colorful building in a fairly monochromatic Berlin? And the second is, what's your position as an architect of wanting to control what it looks like from one time of the day to another time of the day when people have control over their blinds and their colors and their, their louvers and such? Um. I mean the uh let's say the um the reception uh, of the building was i think um very divided because as you know the at the time berlin um the the kind of architectural profession and also the uh, um say uh, planning authorities they were in a, in a what was later on be described as an architectural war between two factions one was in favor of reconstruction uh, uh, of the city along the historical um, uh, typologies, urban typologies and architectural typologies. And the other one was kind of more in favor of innovation and kind of a, a, a celebration of that moment of uh, reunification. Obviously, we were very much in the second camp. Uh, and uh, and accordingly, I mean, we were attracting a lot of um, praise, but also a lot of criticism, uh, depending who you were talking to. There is, I mean, there's also one of the arguments uh, is obviously that you, that it becomes a unique object, and how many unique objects can you have in a in a urban? Uh, I mean, if you imagine this this uh, skyline now every color every kind has a different color it would probably be also unbearable but i mean that's in a way um the the, the challenge or the, the the task of the architects architects in in charge of a project like this to to choose their coloring in a in a, i mean with a certain um understanding of the context they're they're operating in um, there are examples of uh, cities that are that have their own colors, like Stockholm, for example, has large quarters that are entirely red and really, really beautiful, different types of reds. Uh, or, I mean, of course, in Mediterranean context, you get um, very beautiful colored cities. So, I mean, there are there are historic examples um, of not necessarily high-rises, but um, colored buildings. Now, as far as the variegation is concerned, um, for us, it was really an attempt to also um, uh, try and find an appropriate language for what we considered at the time to be low energy architecture. I mean, you today we say kind of a sustainable architecture. 
Um, here we were trying to run a high-rise uh, without mechanical ventilation, without cooling and so on and so forth. And we were also trying to empower uh, or motivate people to, to make the building their own, to kind of intervene, to kind of close the window, open the window, kind of uh, close the shutters, uh, arrange them in such a way that they have a view and have light and wh whatever they like. And in a way, this kind of empowerment was meant to be is part of the message in a way. So the fact that the, the building also reacts to the climate, so this is maybe a morning or it may be a winter situation, and then this is an afternoon or a summer situation, we thought was part of the, the architectural language in a way that is starting to be aware of not just urban context or typological or historical or other kind of con or functional context, but also uh, of the climate, uh, of the weather, if you like, and kind of is able to react to it and somehow express this. So, um, yeah, I mean, here, here you see the principle of how this works. Actually, on the right-hand side, you see the colorful facade, which is, has this certain depth. And if you open windows into this uh, space and also on the other side of the building, you get and it's just the openings are absolutely minimal. There's just really s slots. You get a kind of very even uh, fresh air flow through the building, which is very pleasant actually, even on su hot summer days. And that's kind of running through the building. This is here. This is Arab. This is before simulation. Before simulation exist existed. I mean, these were experimental programs that were developed in Arabs, uh, which were simulating the. Uh, the thermal but also the fire and smoke performance uh, of the building without which we probably couldn't have built this um, and here you can see the building in its context and yes it is of course a kind of special uh, a special thing but um, <coughs> it's also uh, picking up the dialogue uh, with its context and you can see the um, and just see here this is the historic building that that gray thing here and uh, unfortunately, I haven't got a picture on the other side now. I don't think so. Um, no, um, but it's on the other side. It's actually kind of very respectfully uh, acknowledging the kind of color palette of the existing building. So, okay, look, <coughs> we're we're running through time very quick. Maybe could we go to let's say the Munich project? Sure. Uh, I mean, there's a number of other projects which are really, really important, but yeah. I just wanted to, to jump the, to the project for the, the art gallery in Munich, because I think it's, uh, I mean, again... It's a lot, yes. Yeah, there's, there's a few I other know. things to... Yeah, to, to here we through. are. Okay. <laughs> Maybe you could just say a little bit about, because this is an art gallery in Munich, uh, and obviously there's the, the, the organizational planning in terms of how the gallery works, in terms of how the various galleries you move through and so on and so forth, but there's a lot of use of color uh, on the facade with these ceramic uh, pieces and stuff. I'm, I'm interested in both at what point that came into the project in terms of your development, at what point as a reaction to the client of having an art gallery that had a specific kind of coloration or, or color to the public domain, and uh, what the kind of conversations around color as part of the building, as part of the building fabric was relative to the programmatic uses and, and the internal uses of the galleries and so forth? Yeah, um, I mean, first of all, this, it's an art gallery for a particular collection, <coughs> which um, 
which consisted mostly of uh, 20th century painting, mostly American painting. Um, and so therefore, um, it was clear that the, the envelope of this building wouldn't have many windows um, because uh, you really want to have very controlled, uh, preferably top light, uh, if, you want to, if you're into daylight galleries, and we were into daylight galleries. Um, uh, and the, the views out and particularly the light in from outside has to be very controlled. So it would be clear that we would have large areas that would be, uh, you know, basically blank walls. Um, and there was a, obviously it's in the middle of Munich. It's in a very uh, popular uh, district, which is a sort of originally neoclassical district, quite badly damaged in the war, and this has this, all these kind of nice residential um, uh, buildings. So, I mean, it was clear that we couldn't kind of make a, say, let's say, a concrete wall, even if it's beautiful, fair-faced concrete with a tadawando kind of uh, <laughs> hint. You're not trying to suggest <laughs> what might be here a year yeah. from now. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that basically that wouldn't thrill people uh, was the suggestion anyway. And so we were from the competition. We were thinking of a, of color, and we were actually interested in the perception of the building from different distances. Um, and we were thinking in the competition of glass, as we had been working with glass before, uh, printed in uh, with kind of some kind of dot or line or some sort of translucent. Um, or not translucent, partially uh, opaque uh, sort of layer. And then we were thinking of having a second layer behind, which would then kind of mix if you, if you have, I don't know, yellow and blue, say, blue in the background, yellow in the foreground, you will, from a distance, you will see it as green, right? And then you come closer, it sort of starts to fall apart into the two components. That was the plan. And then we made uh, mock-ups again. Uh, we, we kind of made one-to-one -one models and so on and so forth, and we've discovered that this really doesn't work because the front layer kind of casts a shadow onto the back layer. And also, if, if you're working with glass, it's reflective. And even if you don't use museum glass, which is uh, incredibly expensive, you still get so much reflection that this idea doesn't work. And what helped us a great deal is actually the fact that uh, something that we had um, somehow ignored, but was part of the competition brief already, namely that the neighbors, uh, people opposite on the other side of the street, had complained about this competition. There was a big debate amongst the stakeholders, and the result of it was that the, the, the competition brief asked the museum to create a facade that would be sound absorbing, so that there would be no sound reflection onto the opposite side of the uh, street, because the neighbors were totally against this museum, because it blocked their view, of course, and so on. And in the end, the, the rationalization of their discomfort with this intervention came down to sound. And so the brief was, make a building that's sound absorbing, <laughs> a facade that's sound absorbing. And what we ended up doing is this. We had a, a, a double layer facade. And if you look closely, you'll see that the back layer is, has many perforations and actually has a, a sound absorbing layer behind. So it's a little bit like uh, what you find on motorways or something where to protect uh, residential areas or something like that. And on the, on the front, uh, we have a sort of, if you like, decorative layer, which is um, which is made of ceramic sticks, which are spaced out. And the decorative layer is kind of trying to 
structure the building into three volumes. If you see, there's a kind of lightish volume in the foreground, a kind of tall thing, a dark volume at the bottom, and then there's something in between, a sort of middle tone um, that's sitting on top. So, I mean, the, 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 the idea was to read this building as a, as a combination of three volumes, where in reality, obviously, it's just one continuous wall. So we're sort of trying to, again, kind of visually uh, deviate from the physical form and uh, and at the same time we were sort of trying to get this mix effect of what I was describing earlier the blue and the yellow makes the green and that's kind of illustrated here with the kind of Bauhaus Kreisel what do you call this Kreisel the kind of uh, whatever you know what I mean yeah spinning top okay you can see that I mean if you you choose the color range and if you spin it uh, it turns into a kind of uni, a kind of uh, continuous color. And that's what happens is actually if you're far away, I mean, so we ended up having this double layer. So we ended up having this double layer, uh, uh, not just material, but also color. And uh, from a distance, it kind of more or less reads as a slightly changing, but more or less uniform surface. And the closer you come, the more you realize that it's made up of several layers. And now if you change the rela in relationship to the surface, you also um, sometimes see the front layer. And if you look directly onto the facade, you see the back layer, the back layer being folded metal with the mini perforations for the sound absorption. And then as you move along, it kind of disappears again. And you kind of see, see the front layer again. And sometimes also when it's the right light, you see the ceramic nature of, uh, of those sticks, which are uh, reflective. Um, and if you come closer, you kind of become more aware of the actual materiality. And we chose um, a ceramic glaze, which is very transparent. So you can even understand that even that kind of component is made of several layers. It's a sort of um, uh, the, the terracotta, the, the actual uh, cooked um, sort of clay in the background, which has its own color. It's sometimes red, sometimes white, sometimes yellow. And then it has a kind of layer, uh, a kind of glaze layer on top. So you end up having, and that's very difficult to explain in, in photographs, you end up having a surface which is almost like some kind of fog. or like some, It's sort of insubstantial so because you somehow you don't know exactly where to focus on the back, on the foreground, and even the closer you come, you, it becomes more and more uh, also a material attraction, something that you want to touch. As a matter of fact, as I was telling you, uh, something that people want to take home, unfortunately, as well. You, so. were, you were saying that the <laughs> problem is people are actually stealing the yeah. pieces of ceramic and you yeah, have to replace them. Yeah, we have a real problem then on the lower level, we constantly have to replace the sticks, so, but anyway. <laughs> Anyway, the, the whole idea is that, it, you know, it's, it's something that works in movement. Um, uh, we, we talk of kinetic uh, polychromy that changes in movement and that kind of gains its aesthetic presence um, as you uh, move around it. And of course, the clients were absolutely thrilled with it because it repairs you for the aesthetic uh, experience that you have when you come inside the museum. So it's, it's in a way, carries the core message of the museum outside into the urban space and kind of somehow makes an introduction, an overture, if you like, um, to what's coming in the museum. Okay, that's fantastic. Uh, look, we've, we've been going for almost an hour. 
but we do want to open it up if there are any questions uh, anybody has for Matthias. Uh, Jeff has a question here. Just wait for the microphone and Thanks put it close. Yeah. Thanks very much. Um, Matthias, I loved, loved the explanation, some fantastic. Um, I mean, I look over here at the city here, and I think you should move here because we need lots of help because the buildings are very dull. So if you could, that would be great. Um, my question really is around um, how you form the idea of what the colors should be or will be with, with your client. Um, I mean, you talked about some of the themes on GSW. You've sort of looked at the, um, uh, you know, the, the the red roofs, and there was a theme that came from there. Um, and you obviously in the Munich one, you kind of worked through what you were trying to create there. But it's such a, if you like, big decision for a client what the ultimate building is kind of going to go and look like. And I'm just interested in how do you work with your client to to come up with what the, the palette and the appearance is going to be? Well, generally, we're, we're open. Um, we, we, we believe in some kind of um, integrated design. In other words, we, we're um, very early on inviting our consultants, uh, um, obviously also users, if there are um, users involved, and also our clients, into the discussion about... Um, about the kind of emergence of a design that's sometimes a bit difficult because many users kind of fall in love with your first idea and then you come three weeks later say, oh, well, we didn't really like that, we're now doing this. So you kind of say, oh, I like, like this much better. So then you had to kind of have to argument, argue and, and somehow... Uh, but these, these kind of debates normally um, help us as well to kind of... Um, either strengthen or question our own ideas. And in a, to a certain degree, it's similar with color. Certainly inside the office, we have a, a, an open debate on you know, which direction to go. And it's, as I explained earlier, it's a lengthy process. I mean, these are now ceramic examples. And you can see the NCS kind of little cards, um, which we gave the, um, we gave the um, the, the ceramics people and then they make the, the glazes for us and they try to hit it and as you can see I mean look at this for example look at this one here I mean this it they're, they're not all well it's not so easy to but I'm here it's too dark and so on and so forth I mean the, the, the results are a little bit unpredictable because it depends on temperature and, and the exact mix of the pigment and blah 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 and but sometimes what they come back with is nicer than what we asked them to do, right? So then <laughs> we kind of start to, uh, you know, rearrange the colors according to what they sent us. And this is a, a kind of process which we then also, we mock up. I mean, this was like a second, we had two mock-ups in uh, GSW because we've, uh, not GSW, the Brandhorst Museum, we had one um, in an interior and then we ended up, we now we have to see it on site with the actual daylight on that particular uh, site. So we had it mocked up again and, and then took the decision on the basis of that. Um, and that, of course, is, is visible to anybody and you, even the people walking past uh, comment on it and so on and so forth. So we kind of um, try and keep ourselves open to, to comment and... Uh, 
if possible, kind of create the feeling that everybody who's involved in the process is also part of the decision in a way. Any anybody else with a question? Uh, there's one over here, Hamish. Uh, thank you for that. Um, a mock-up. It's just it's making me feel envious. In Australia, a mock-up is usually the first piece of the of the facade that they're going to put the rest on anyhow. That's not really a mock-up. It's just the start. But the question is, in your experience with colour, um, you know, architect, we've got a very bright copper-coloured sports centre down here, a bright gold convention centre. The outside of the building is going to be tricky, but we've always struggled with colour on the interior. Every carpet ends up from the user group grey. Every wall ends up being grey. Do you have a, the same issue finding that the exterior facade and the interior colours from a client group are the same, or do you find one of them easier to well, convince? Um, unfortunately, interiors we don't always get to do. I mean, uh, it's obviously commercial office buildings that are being fit, uh, fitted out by others, or possibly fitted out by others. Um, and uh, let's say the kind of proper interior um, jobs that you know really defines all the all, all the uh, surfaces and so on for us are kind of relatively difficult to get actually but i mean in something like a museum obviously we are uh, defining every single uh, surface every single whatever wall and floor and uh, ceiling and so on and normally i mean it, it de really depends, but I mean, like this, for example, is in, in the interiors only the foyer has color, uh, and then of course the galleries are totally neutral. I mean, we have uh, a, a beautiful oak floor, and there's a sort of slightly off-white uh, ceiling and so on. But I mean, it's generally very, very neutral in order to let the art um, kind of unfold, if you like, its aura. But in the foyer, for example, where we use only one or two or so colors together with natural materials is not so difficult. Um, I'm just trying to think of really colorful interiors. I don't think we've done, really. Um, I, I think it's an in, in the interior, the colors get very controlled. And if we, if we, work with it, if we can get, get to work with it. Anyone else? No? Oh, there's one here. Um, thank you for the presentation. It's really insightful because I think a lot of architects don't really look at colors nowadays. But I do wonder because you mentioned at the end it's quite intuitive for you and maybe you mentioned laborious or iterative process to decide those colors. But I still wonder like through years of practicing, does your practice i guess find like a connection or i guess a repertoire or like a logic because i guess in a way is that intuition can be articulated in like a a method almost in terms of colors and its spatial effect maybe not so much because i think maybe in exterior it's like related to the context or to the effect that you want to achieve but when it comes to like the special effect, maybe, well, unfortunately, I'm thinking mostly interior or maybe in, for example, your photonic project. Is there like, um, I guess, yeah, an articulation of that intuition, maybe? I think it's very difficult to, to make rules, if you like. It's, it's really decided on, on, every, uh, on the merit of every particular project. But I can maybe say one thing, which is that, um, 
there is in the color ranges and the palettes that we are developing almost as a rule there are always the so-called dirties there, there are always some dirties in the in the range and you can see this here very clearly uh, some muddy colors that are not particularly anything you know it's like you don't know is it gray is it yellow is it blue or whatever is it purple something like that those kind of those so-called dirties make the kind of purer colors stand out much stronger they make make them kind of appear more um, luminous without having to kind of you know fully hit the button with kind of lots of red or lots of orange or whatever you can make more subtle kind of uh, a more subtle range and bring out a kind of play in amongst the colors that's maybe one thing i can give you as a kind of piece of advice always introduce some dirties <laughs> Great, thank you. Listen, we're a little bit uh, beyond our our limit. We sh we should have made this about a two-hour section session. I know that there's about another forty to fifty images in here that we haven't gotten to, uh, but you know you can always look up on their website, uh, Sarbrook Hutton, uh, and see the the incredible range of projects which are still going on. And also, I would you know anyone who's interested in the work. Please come uh, to the University, University of Melbourne on Tuesday for the... Be heated spaces. Huh? Be heated space. Well, it'll be heated space. It'll be inside. But, uh, you know, please come along. I, it'll be a slightly different focus and topic, but you will see other projects that we didn't get an opportunity to see. I also want to thank uh, the M Pavilion for hosting this, uh, this talk and this presentation in a colorful space, you know, it's probably the most colorful uh, M Pavilion that we've had, uh, and it's fantastic that it's here, and that it's still here, and that we're able to use it. And I want to thank the M Pavilion for putting on the effort to, to make this all happen, and for you to be here. I want to thank you as an audience for coming along on a you know, typical Melbourne day when, you know, 37 yesterday, 21 today, if we're lucky. Uh, but we're here and participating in what Invivian does really well. And then finally, I want to thank Matthias Saarbrook, uh, Saarbrook Hutton. He just arrived about, uh, well, less than 20 hours ago, probably about 18 hours ago. And he's here presenting and talking cogently, which I think is an incredible effect. Uh, uh, really impressive to, to be able to, to do. And uh, that's it. Thank you very much. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.